Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Lottery by Shirley Jackson The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around ten o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took only about two hours, so it could begin at ten o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still full of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced this name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys and the very small children rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their elder brothers and sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain tractors and taxis. They stood together away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women, standing by their husbands, began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teenage club, the Halloween programme, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him, because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square, carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, Little late today, folks. The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the centre of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool. And when Mr. Summers said, Some of you fellows want to give me a hand? There was a hesitation before two men, Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box, 
There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything's being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood colour, and in some places faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his oldest son Baxter held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them into the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers's coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square next morning. The rest of the year, the box was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves's barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered, there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people, but years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box, but this also had changed with time. Until now, it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this. In his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders and slid into place in the back of the crowd. I clean forgot what day it was, she said to Mrs. Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Mrs. Hutchinson went on, and then I looked out the window and the kids were gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th and came running. She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, you're in time though, they're still talking away up there. Mrs. Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humouredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, 
Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Mrs. Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie, Mrs. Hutchinson said, grinning. Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position after Mrs. Hutchinson's arrival. Well now, Mr. Summers said soberly, guess we'd better get started, get this over with, so as we can go back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar, Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. Uh, he's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who, who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horace is not but sixteen yet, Mrs. Dunbar said regretfully. Guess uh, I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, uh, A Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fella, Jack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. All ready, he called. Now, um, I'll read the names, heads of families first, and the men come up and take the paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone's had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams! A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said. And Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorously and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said, um, Anderson, uh, Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark, um, Delacroix. There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said. And Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie. And another said, There she goes. We're next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert, um, Hutchinson. Get up there, Bill, Mrs. Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. 
Jones. They do say, Mr. Adams said to old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin, and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke, Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Mrs Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run and tell Dad, Mrs Dunbar said. Mr Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called, Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in a lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson, the tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellas. For a minute, no one moved. And then, all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then, the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said, that was done pretty fast, and now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Uh, Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson family. You got any other households in the Hutchinsons? There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with the husband's families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that, as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. And I've got no other family except the kids. Then, as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation. And as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. Uh, how many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and uh, Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got the tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take Bill's and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I, I tell you, it, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him time enough to choose. 
Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers with those onto the ground, where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchinson was saying to the people around her. Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked. And Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around at his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summers said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summers said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy next, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was twelve, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward, switching her skirt, and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said, and Billy, his face red and his feet over large, nearly knocked the box over as he got the paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute, looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched the paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchinson reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with the slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. The girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy, and the sound of the whisper reached the edges of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summers said. Open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened the slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, turning round to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There. There was a pause. And then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchinson, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us a paper, Bill. Bill Hutchinson went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it. The black spot. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with a heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchinson held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said. Let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Mrs. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turn to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mrs. Dunbar had small stones in both hands and she said, gasping for breath, I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the centre of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately, 
as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in front of the crowd of villagers, with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed. And then they were upon her. Everybody dies, don't they? That was The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Now, I'm not going to say much about Shirley Jackson because if you don't know who she is, I'll be astounded. I'm going to say something about The Lottery, though. First of all, in defence, I decided to do it in my own native accent because I think this story is easily moved to rural England. So I think I could get away with doing a Northern English accent. So there we are. You may not care about that. Let's hope you care about the lottery. So this story, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, was first published in 1948 in a New Yorker, and the lottery both caused outrage and brought fame to Shirley Jackson. The New Yorker, who published it, got more letters about this story than about any other story in its history. Justifiably so, the lottery is a horrifying story and perfectly constructed, and I think it's a masterpiece. Now, I want to look first at the construction of the story. First of all, the setting is an ordinary, everyday world. It's a beautiful June day in New England. And this is a folksy American village. This initial setting is guaranteed to conjure up some kind of rural idyll of peace and neighbourliness. The names are all Anglo, down-to-earth names. Where the names aren't English, they're included to remark upon. So the French Delacroix gets a comment, and the Italian Zanini ends as a period or a full stop to the list of names. So it jumps out and boom, that underlines the fact we've got to the end of the list. This is a peaceful place of farmers and fields and apple pie and dishes that are not left dirty in the sink. This could be a village in old England rather than new England and that further roots it in an Anglo culture and ties it into all the English country idyll images. Only the comment that there's a memory of when the village was founded uh, sets it clearly in America because the founding of English villages is nearly always before recorded history. So that's the setup. In terms of masterful foreshadowing, Jackson smuggles in the fateful and fatal pile of stones by describing what it looks like the ordinary horsing around of small boys. And at this point, we don't know what they're for. And it's not until right at the end that what they're for is revealed, creating that aha that readers love. The patriarchal structure of the village society underlines its conservative nature. Women are expected to come after their men. They stand apart from them, just like in traditional churches and synagogues and mosques. And a grown boy is preferred to be the head of the family rather than the wife when the husband is out of action. Old man Warner is also the voice of tradition. And like all oldsters everywhere, he thinks that the modern age has gone to pot and folk ain't what they used to be. For him, and through him for the whole story, tradition is important. Why? Because it's tradition. And that alone is good enough. We're given no validity for this horrifying ceremony other than it's what we do and that is really important i think and i'll say something about that at the end the construction of the box itself that they put the slips in like a ballot box is dwelled upon and this 
emphasizes its down-to-earthness and reinforces the naturalistic setting. This box is not the same as the old box, it's a bit shabby. It shows the length of time the lottery's been going on and rooted in the past because they used to use wooden uh, lots, I think they would call them, and now they use slips. So they've moved ahead, but the box is, it's left on people's shelves from year to year. It's so much a part of the ordinary assimilated life. It's so accepted in this community. Again, this is really important, okay? So we're set up for the sheer quotidien nature of the lottery. It's just what folk do. It's no big deal. Jackson also employs the ticking clock device to build tension. We see this in all thrillers. At first, the reaction and the chat of the folks is plain, everyday and low-key. Then, the ticking clock of the list of names begins. Jackson breaks up the beats of this name list with apparently unimportant quips and comments of the folks standing there. But as the name list gets further down the alphabet, we begin to suspect that rather than this being plain and wholesome and merely a harmless rural tradition, something wholly sinister and malign is going on. Jackson resists the urge to make things surreal and continues to maintain the naturalistic air of ordinariness through noting the reactions of those assembled, which ring really true. Old man Warner's rabbiting about tradition, the schoolgirls who hope their friend Nancy doesn't draw the ticket, Tessie's quiet whining about fairness, the sober resignation of everyone else, their unobtrusive gladness that it wasn't them who pulled the black spot. And of course the black spot features in Treasure Island, we're familiar with it from Treasure Island, and we know that the pirate who gets the paper with the black spot, which is given to him anonymously by his mates, is marked to be killed. Okay, So, boom, we realise then, at that point, exactly what's going on. And I want to comment on some of the references that popped into my mind. Uh, for, there will be plenty of others. These are the ones I'm familiar with. Firstly, there are resonances with the folk horror 2019 film Midsommar, in which a rural community, in this case in Sweden, has brutal traditions which are horrifying to outsiders, but perfectly accepted within the community. The difference in Midsommar is that that film gives us some explanation, some rationale, even though it's not adequate to us, why it culls the elderly population, whereas the lottery gives us no rationale at all other than its tradition. This trope of remote rural communities that maintain bloody traditions whose origin is lost in the mists of time is a staple of folk horror stories. I recently read H.R. Uh, Wakefield's The First Sheaf, which is a perfect example of this, but see also The Wicker Man for this theme. The message is, backwards folk do bad things, and we all know that. Although I'm pretty backwards myself, and I've never indulged in a bloodthirsty ritual. And then another resonance is the Purge series of films. And these are very urban, but they, they, they can be understood as a purge to the lottery, you know, Hollywoodized, if that's the word. I mean, they lack completely any subtlety, M mostly lack all humour, all craft or restraint. So in that case, I'm not actually putting them side by side with Jackson's very crafty very subtle, very well-constructed, artistic piece of work. The, the Purge is just grossness, but it is the same idea, isn't it? And then we have this combination of ordinariness and brutality in the lottery. And we find that in places like Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. In fact, Tarantino uses this a lot 
in his Dawn to Dusk and things like that, but in Pulp Fiction particularly, where we see that the assassins who are going to murder people completely without remorse have an everyday discussion like anybody else might do about the merits of Royale with cheese on hamburgers. And then this small town orderiness. I want to talk about something like David Lynch's Blue Velvet, where we have a similar small town America going about its pleasant life and behind the veil is awful murder and depravity. But differently to this story, Blue Velvet separates the two worlds. The happy, smiley world of the small town is utterly separate from the demi-monde of horrifying violence, perverted sexuality and drugs which goes on behind the scenes. But in the lottery, there is no separation between ordinary, happy, small town life and murder. You couldn't even say there are two strands interwoven by Jackson. You know, wholesome, folksy life and brutal, remorseless traditions. They're not two themes. They are the same. And that is the masterly piece of work she's done here. These are not two themes. She makes them identical. And I do think this is important. So in the lottery, there's no separation. This juxtaposition of ordinariness and brutality creates the sheer sense of horror that's going on. And Jackson builds this up by the step-by-step-by-step process of the lottery. Every step is defined. The names, the slips. Once, you, once the family gets the names, the father has to stand forward. One horrifying thing is that the families don't resist this. One of, them, one of their beloved is going to be killed. And they just go, okay, it's tradition, you know. And it's chilling. That is chilling. And the proceedings, I went to um, Grasmere Sports, and it's a sports day. And the kids play sports and the grandpas do spoon, egg and spoon races and there's dog shows and somebody brings their cows and stuff like that. And yet there is a process, there is a, a, a structure, and it takes itself seriously in that small town way. An amateur way, it's not slick, it, it, it's comic sometimes, you know, but it takes itself very seriously, the formality of the process. And the lottery does this, and so it all rings so true. It's so true, and that is the genius of this story. The height of horror is there is no explanation of why the lottery goes ahead and kills a random member of the population other than it is tradition. And the pointlessness brings it home. And so why I want to say that this is a great piece of work is what Jackson has done. And you look at the news every day and you will see earthquakes, wars, disease, people murdering people. And it's like, what is the great significance of this? What is the purpose? What is the divine narrative? There isn't any. It's just so ordinary. And the point is, we let it go on. We are resigned to these things, you know? And this is what happens in this village. We have resigned ourselves. We are decent, friendly people. And like them, I think Jackson's saying, we just accept the horror. We don't do anything about it. We just, oh, well, it's a chore. We'll get it done. And oh, God, thank God it wasn't me. Let's get back to washing the dishes. So that is it. What a great story. So that was another story of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. I've made the comments on, I've read the story, I've made the comments on it, and now I want to have a little few minutes to talk about housekeeping for the, for the podcast. So... We move forward on all fronts. Um, that sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? But yeah, no, things are going well. I've been focusing a lot on YouTube 
and I started thinking, right, I'm going to be slightly different from all the other YouTube channels here and I'm going to actually film myself reading the stories. And I've done one or two of those and some people liked it, but I have an indication that people actually prefer just listening. They don't want to see me and who can blame them? I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't want to see me either. So I'm, I may do live broadcasts. I'll continue to do those on Facebook and YouTube whereby you will see me, but I'm going to do at least one of these pre-recorded stories on my nice microphone so I get really good sound so you can just do the dishes while you're hearing stories of m murder, monstrosity and evil and you can just get about you get about your daily things <laughs> while you while you're listening to this stuff. So that that's the plan going forward. I'm going to do one of these a week and just and also it means that the, the audio quality is better. I will do a live video as well. So I'll be putting out um, two YouTube videos a week and one podcast. And I'll probably then take the audio from the live, clean it up a bit and put it out as a podcast. So it's a win-win. You get more podcasts this way. Mm. I decided I was, I've been listening to lots of stuff and, you know, I do my own audiobooks, And so this is a kind of call to action. I'm going to put a link in the podcast notes. So if you're listening to this on a podcast, go to your phone or wherever you are and have a look at this link and you'll see I'm selling my audiobooks at a huge discount. Some people don't like Amazon and the other big, not as much me, but Apple and Barnes and Noble and Kobo and people like this aren't, they don't tend to attract the um, approbation, is that the word? Oh, disapprobation, that's the one, of um, uh, people. But, you know, I have to give them a big cut so if I sell direct to you, we don't give them a cut. And so that, you know, we're not putting more dollars in Jeff Bezos's pocket and I can give you a discount. I can pass it on to you. So I'm not actually making any more, but we have that lovely warm feeling in that we're not um, fueling huge money grabbing psychopathic corporations. I'm not naming any. Anyway, deal directly with me, support the artist and get a discount and, uh, you know, cut out the middleman. That's it. So have a look at the link and you'll see that there are links to my own podcasts. In terms of my home life, um, I have, have you noticed, if you watch the YouTube videos, you see I've acquired a, a golden skull. It's actually plastic. It's not a real skull. And he's got black butterflies on him. And for some reason, I call him Jack. And he tends to make an appearance in my live broadcasts. Uh, he sits next to me and he's kind of grinning face sort of cheers me up a little bit. So that's Jack. Um, we still haven't moved house, although we will be soon, I'm hoping to. So if you do look, you'll see a different bedroom. <laughs> I don't want to actually broadcast from my bedroom. I would love to have a studio, but you know, this may happen. It may not, may happen. I've got loads of ideas of things to do. I never stop having ideas, but I'm, I'm probably going to start a new channel of um, true scary stories because i used to lead ghost stories around the haunted places and so i picked up a load of true allegedly true scary stories or ghost stories horror stories so i'll probably do a different channel but it's finding the time to do it anyway i hope you're all well um it's been quite warm here i'm sitting around in my hartwood institute t-shirt and that leads me neatly to thank jonathan sharp and the hartwood institute for allowing me to use their music at the beginning and the end You'll take care. Bye. Jack says bye too.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room so? today, didn't you? You tried. How to do the dead come back, Mother? Didn't you? You What's the secret of the dead come back?